So I've been thinking a little bit about what I wanted to do once we resumed our Bible study. And um, I came across this intersection um, a few days, uh, a few weeks ago. And if you don't recognize this, this is the intersection of Gilson Parkway and Erie Road. And right here is Body of Christ Church. That's the parsonage right there of Pastor Mike. This is over in the park looking at it according to the Google Maps that I copied. And um, it's a three-way stop. And I don't know why I thought like this, but I did. It's kind of strange. I was thinking, what would happen if all these cars emerged to this intersection all at the same time, but all of them ignored the stop sign? And obviously, you'd have a collision and a crash. And I was thinking a little bit about how often in our culture, um, we find a lot of people ignoring the stop signs that are going to lead to detrimental uh, uh, unity as a uh, country and uh, all that type of thing. So I started to play around with this metaphor a little bit, and I came up with this um, as our uh, theme for the next uh, couple months. And I'm going to call this study Intersection, the Collision of Identity, Culture, and Control. And those are the three stop signs uh, that I want to get a handle on. Uh, how does our identity play into the things that we experience? Uh, how does it, uh, it fold into our culture? And why is it that we are so desirous of controlling our identity and our culture? And what made me uh, go ahead and press the start button on this is uh, I was looking in the scriptures and it dawned on me that a lot of the stories that we're very familiar with, and we're going to look at a few of them tonight, really is the intersection of these three things as well, a particular identity that intersects with a different kind of culture and the conflict that kind of comes as a result of that. So what I want to do tonight is I want to kind of just introduce uh, a few things, and we're going to look at a few different passages of scripture, and this is the type of study that we don't have to go through the whole handout each Wednesday night. We'll just pick up where we left off. So it's the type of study where you are invited to comment and ask questions and interact as much as you'd like. It doesn't matter to me whether uh, we get through three slides or 13 slides, but um, just I think it'll be good for us to kind of see how uh, our story in our country at this time also reflects a lot of the same dynamics that we see in the biblical stories that we might be familiar with and yet have never kind of looked at it through this lens. So uh, that was the inspiration, this particular intersection at, that led to these several things. So what I want to do tonight is introduce a few things and you're going to need your Bible. Uh, we're going to look at a few different passages of scripture and uh, I hopefully will help you see that a lot of these same things are kind of occurring in the text. So whether we realize it or not, 
we carry, just like we carry our name with us, we carry our identity and the culture that we are raised in uh, with us everywhere we go. And that is what kind of produces our own unique perspective on things. Uh, you have people that are a part of the same country, but they don't look at life necessarily the same way we do, uh, simply because their experience is different, their family life is different, uh, maybe their age bracket or economic bracket is different than where we are currently sitting. But what I think stands out is when we, as a group of people that call ourselves uh, American citizens, um, do come to this intersection, what we find is that there is often a collision of these subcultures that we are raised in, and it is a threat in many respects to our, our identity. And I think that's why people fight over it so um, vigorously. Now, you factor that into the fact that in a time before uh, this current technological development that we live in, um, people really interacted within their own small town or neighborhood or school or business, whatever it may be. But with the development of technology, the world has gotten much, much smaller. And as a result of that, we have been introduced to a lot of different cultures that uh, our, maybe our parents or grandparents for sure were never introduced to. And as a result of that, uh, it creates new problems. And these new problems um, provide the tension that we often feel uh, around us all the time. So we might define this as a world of multiculturalism, uh, multi-identities, and then the fear that our own particular identity might be negated uh, leads us to defend it, uh, fight for it, and sometimes cause harm in the process. And of course, since we've last met in our uh, Wednesday study, there has been a couple of mass shootings that has taken place in Buffalo and Texas, and um, that's been receiving a lot of press. Uh, there's a lot on the CNN and other news channels about these particular incidents. And I think what we see is that there is this ongoing narrative that um, there are groups of people that are fearful of other people who are not like them. And as a result, it can actually lead not just to manipulation or prejudice. Um, it can actually lead to physical harm. And so I think this study will help us in understanding what's going on around us. At least that's what I hope. So do you have some thoughts as we finish this introductory slide? Any thoughts or questions? So here we are in the current American landscape and um, the pressure of our own identities as individuals, where it fits into our culture, also is infused with the tension of politics as well. And uh, certain political pressures uh, that come from special interest groups 
and a lot of money involved in it as well to try to preserve a particular type of identity or a particular type of culture. Um, and this attempt to protect our own identity or our own culture uh, is this is what causes a lot of uh, the manipulation and control that we observe that people then rebel against either just by peaceful protest or uh, by uh, the, the violent uh, expressions that we see on a daily basis. Now, if we are to look at the current American landscape, the way I see it is if you look at it from the right or from the left, uh, it's the same problem, but it is viewed from a different direction. So that three-way stop, if you're traveling to that intersection, you're looking south, or maybe you're looking north, or maybe you're looking a different direction. So at least in the American landscape, there are two directions, it seems to me, that uh, we currently see in this discussion of identity and culture. So let's talk about the right spectrum. Have you noticed um, from the right, and this would be politically to the right, um, that this particular viewpoint does not like hyphenated identity. We're Americans. We should speak American. We should, you know, that type of language. So even if you're African-American or Asian-American or biracial, uh, bilingual, whatever it may be, you have, you and I have seen that this perspective uh, wants authentic Americans. That's why there's such a big deal also about the crisis at the boredom, border. It doesn't matter how much danger they're in, uh, they need to come the right way, that type of language. Uh, they have to go through years of waiting, uh, that type of thing, no matter how, how threatened they might be from where they're coming from. So all of that, I think, plays into a shared sense of American identity. And what goes along with that is, well, you're not a true patriot if you don't just use the identity of American, um, you know, uh, you, this Asian American, African American, German American, Irish American, all that type of thing needs to be kind of pushed aside and, and everything should become a single identity. It doesn't work that way though. It, it is something that we carry with us. A person who's an Italian American um, uh, or some hyphenated identity cherishes that part of their identity. Does that make sense? And as a result of that, they wanna keep that as a part of their identity. So driving from a different direction, if you look at it from the left of the spectrum, uh, we might say that this particular viewpoint is pushing for the fact that, hey, our roots as a country um, embrace diversity, embrace plurality, uh, embrace the um, uh, Statue of Liberty and the, um, the things that were uh, bring, bring me your poor and all the, the, the statements on the Statue of Liberty. So this perspective is 
uh, hey, Americans are a part of a melting pot. That's the way it was from the beginning of our country. And we should preserve that plurality of identity and culture, and it should be accommodated. And um, uh, we should put multiple languages on uh, food products, um, signage. Are you following what I'm saying? So there's different perspectives and these, this all kind of comes to that collision point where people tend to fight for whatever direction they're driving in. Does that make sense? Um, rather than saying, okay, let's stop at the stop signs here and let's have a good conversation on um, what would make our country better. And probably um, both perspectives, whether to the right or to the left, bring some things to the table that we need to hear, okay? And make a part of the conversation. So that's how I kind of want to define the current American landscape so that I can then show you that it's nothing new. And that's where we'll turn to the scriptures. Do you have some thoughts there? Yeah. Yeah. So Mark is saying, I know you can't hear online. He said uh, he was wondering why um, in the case of African-Americans, why they don't identify simply as Americans, why they want to be uh, identified as African-Americans, even though, uh, as you just said, Mark, you have German in your background and what, what other, and Swedish in his background, and he's okay with not being called German-American or Swedish-American. Um, I'll give you my take on it. I think I think a lot of uh, the fact that this particular identity group um, keeps bringing up the African-American, the hyphenated uh, description because of all the trauma, because of all the violence that has been done uh, uh, to them. So I think that plays into their overall identity. And um, so here we are, a, a white church that um, we have had African-Americans be a part, but we're not an African-American church. So we come to church and we go home, but the identity also develops a unique subculture. So when African-Americans go to church, they stay at church. They're there for four or five hours. And um, at, all of that is a part of the subculture that's been passed down, I think, from generation to generation that goes way back to when African-Americans could find some time to be together, they maxed it out. They stayed together, you know. You have guys have thoughts on that, any of that? Well, I always thought that the African-American term came about because of slurs that were used in the past in the 50s and 40s, 50s, 60s. I remember the 70s 
the word black was tried to use to describe African Americans. And let's face it, you look at them, you know they're not German or Norwegian or Swedish or Irish or English. Mm-hmm. So there's something, you know, that and their roots are in Africa. Mm-hmm. But I, I did think it had to do, you know, with getting rid of some of the negative slurs. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a good point. Good point. Yeah. Cause there's, there's been uh, not too, too long ago when you think about it, an entire generation that would uh, throw slurs at African-Americans with some very nasty terms, you know? So that, that's a great point. I think that, you know, here's our identity and our culture and we're proud of it. You know, we don't, we're not hiding it. Um, and, and, you know, we want to preserve some of those cultural things that um, have been passed down from, previous generations. Others? Okay, so here's where we're going to use our Bible. So um, let's think a bit about the Exodus story. Now, we know, so we've just been talking about African Americans, and maybe that's a good segue into the first example. So the Jewish people, uh, Israel, uh, was held in captivity in Egypt for approximately 400 years. And they were the primary labor force for what? The building of Egyptian cities, okay? So when we think about um, this story from this angle, the Egyptian power base uh, that controlled this group of people is building a particular kind of culture. So if we had, and I didn't download any of these, but if we have pictures of Egypt, surely a part of the pictures would be the pictures of the pharaohs, how they were buried, the pyramids, Um, a lot of cultural advancements that, in all honesty, I think we still scratch our head in trying to understand how did this culture build the pyramids without cranes? You know, well, they built it on the backs of slave labor and, and that type of thing. So when we think about the Exodus story, obviously, we tend to focus, don't we? on the Israelites, and rightfully so. They're crying out to God for deliverance. They want to uh, be free, and rightfully so. They're being worked uh, every day of the week, and Pharaoh comes along and demands more production, make more bricks to build bigger cities, that type of thing. But let's look at it from the angle of the Egyptians. So, the Israelites are slave labor, but what are they building? They are building an empire. They're building a culture. They are building a way of life. They are uh, using the things around them, whether it's the Nile River or the stones big enough to make pyramids, that type of thing. 
Um, and what's interesting is they want to preserve what they're building. So when Moses is called to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go in a very real way, Pharaoh's sitting there going, well, this is going to stop the building project. All right. I'm not going to let them go. They're my workforce. And as my workforce, I need them to keep on producing because to be a successful pharaoh is to advance the Egyptian culture, not only in Egypt, but we know from the biblical text, Egypt is very aggressive in trying to play for the control of what we call out of the Bible, the promised land eventually where Israel uh, um, goes and settles. But it's not just Egypt, it's two other power bases, Assyria and Babylon, that's also trying to vie for control of that particular landmass. So when you accompany this cultural development uh, that Pharaoh is, is uh, initiating, along with their own unique culture of a worship of multiple of gods. Um, and we read the story in Exodus about um, the plagues. And each plague is a judgment on a particular dominant deity within the Egyptian pantheon. So, there, that's a unique study in and of itself, that each of the plagues is really hitting upon one of the gods that the Egyptians are relying upon to continue to be fruitful and productive and, um, and successful as a people and as a culture. Does that make sense? Okay. Take your Bible, turn over to Exodus chapter 20. So in Exodus chapter 20, they are brought out of Egypt and they come to a place called Mount Sinai. When they come to Mount Sinai, Moses is going to go atop Mount Sinai. And what we are told is um, that God wants them to be a different type of people. So chapter 20, verse one, and, the, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. So these commandments that we call the 10 commandments, um, come on the heels of an already redeemed people out of Egypt. You're my people. Okay. I brought you out of Egypt. Um, you belong to me. Now here's what I'd like you to do. So we tend to look at the 10 commandments simply as a, a moral grid. Okay. These commandments, several of them are vertical toward God. A number of them are horizontal toward uh, each other. But it's more than just a commandment for morality. This is the establishment of a new identity. These are the redeemed people of God. 
And it's the establishment of a different kind of culture than the one that they had spent the last 400 years in. So the Ten Commandments are given to a redeemed people. And as a redeemed people, these laws are based upon who God is and what God has done. And as a result, the Ten Commandments is kind of an integration of a new kind of cosmic, a social order that kind of recreates um, a better identity, a better culture. And scholars even have suggested that uh, Exodus chapter 20 has close, very close tie-ins to the creation account. We won't get into that. So in a way, the Ten Commandments are a recreation. Does that make sense? It, things went a particular way. Now God is going to recreate his people in a different identity using a different kind of culture. Now, here's the problem. Go over to Numbers chapter 11. So they come out, they're given the law. You can skip right past Exodus. There's hundreds of commandments and, and cultural identification um, rituals that are in the book of Leviticus. But by the time you get to Numbers, first turn to chapter 11, chapter 11. And I want you to notice verses one through six. So they've been freed. They're on the edge of the promised land. And notice what happens. Verse one. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard uh, them, his anger was aroused. The fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of uh, the outskirts of the camp. And when the people cried to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down so that the place was called Tabera because fire from the Lord had burned against them. Now, they're complaining. They're complaining. They're not that far removed from a culture of slavery where they have been hundreds of years. Well, why are they complaining? Verse four. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if we if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We've never seen anything but this manna. So what's pulling back, uh, what's pulling on their heartstrings and their memories. The culture of Egypt, the culture of Egypt. When we were there, we were able to eat meat. When we were there, we were able to have cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. So here they are. You Wouldn't you and I think, okay, we'll put up with manna for a while because we're being set free from hundreds of years of slavery, but their cultural identity 
is not solely Israeli. It's a mix between Egyptian and Israelite. And it's this pull to want to go back to what they had before. So it shows you kind of the strength of identity and culture, how strong it is that you'd be willing to go back into something that is dangerous or something that uh, can be, you know, um, abusive, because uh, that's what the Egyptian culture was to the Israelites. And here the identity is pulling them back. Have you ever wondered why, why does a, an abused wife go back to an abusive husband? It's conditioned within the identity, okay? Um, it's hard to start a new identity. It's hard to start a new world. So let's look at one more uh, passage in uh, chapter 14 of Numbers. So you know the story of the sending out of the spies to spy out this new land, this promised land. And what happens is the 12 spies come back and 10 say no, two say go. And here in chapter 14, the people are going to listen to the dominant opinion, right? The 10 rather than the two. And what we see here, let's take a look at verse one. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, <coughs> excuse me, if only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? They're fearful of this other culture that they're going into, the people that are there. Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Again, they, they're being pulled back to Egypt. So let's choose a leader, not Moses, not Aaron. Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, the rest of the chapter continues on and elaborates this. And, um, and of course, the, the, the text goes on to talk about um, them go, wandering in the wilderness. So jump down to verse 33, same chapter. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies dies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. Now, I'm not so sure um, that that accurately represents God's heart as much as how they viewed their current circumstances, that God's against us, we're going to we're going to be shut down in this wilderness for 40 years. However, notice again, it talks about here um, this whole difficulty of stepping into a new identity, 
stepping in and creating a new culture. And uh, of course, they have to conquer the land that follows in the book of Joshua. But so all of these things are kind of a clash of identity and culture between the Egyptians and this newly formed people that are called Israelites, uh, those who wrestle with God, because that's what the, the name Israelite means. So uh, that's just one example that if we're looking for it, while we read these stories, we can see the intersection between culture, identity, and the collision that takes place and the desire for control. So here in chapter 14, the people want control. So they disregard Joshua and Caleb and they go with the 10 spies thinking that these 10 spies will have a leader emerge that will take them back to Egypt, the more familiar culture. Thoughts or questions? Okay, so uh, keep going in your Bible to the book of Judges. So uh, past the book of Numbers, you're going to come to Joshua, uh, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. So um, there's a big deal that is made in the Old Testament about a group of people known as the Philistines, okay? Mm -hmm. The Philistines. The Philistines are found in the book of Judges in, uh, and the book of 1 Samuel uh, on a number of occasions. But go to Judges chapter 14 for a moment. Now, in the eyes of the Israelites, the Philistines, their culture and their identity is... Uh, seen as uncouth, okay? And it's reflected in what they call the Philistines. You'll see it right here. So Samson, one of the judges, he wants a wife and he wants a Philistine woman for a wife. Take a look at verse one, chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah and saw a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. So he's attracted physically to this woman. That's who he wants as his wife. But notice what mom and dad say. So now here a number of years has gone by within um, uh, Israelite culture. And here's the reflection of the Israelites upon the Philistines. Verse three, his father and mother replied, is there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all of our people? Can't you just marry some, a nice Jewish girl, right? Can't you just marry a nice Jewish girl? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? So the description of the Philistines is they are uncircumcised. What does that mean? They don't identify with the cultural identity of the Jewish people of circumcision. And with that identity goes back to Abraham. So, <clears throat> so here we see just kind of a 
an interesting little verse that is reflecting cultural identity and the collision of identities between the Israelites and the Philistines, right? So now go over to 1 Samuel chapter 13. When you get to 1 Samuel chapter 13, I want you to come down um, to a little, what did I have here? Verse 19. Okay. Now, so in the eyes of the Israelites, the Philistines are uncouth. Uh, they're uncultured. Um, and yet that's not really the truth. Um, the Philistines were the ones that developed the ability to make weapons. So verse 19, it says, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel. Like they did not develop the uh, technology to make weapons because the Philistines had said, so they're going to control the market. Otherwise, the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axe, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goats. So on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Okay. In all the land of Israel, there's two swords, according to the text. Now, if you come over to chapter 17, there's a big point that's being made here in chapter 17 in the uh, David and Goliath story. Verse 1, now the Philistines had gathered their forces for war, and they assembled at Saka in Judah, and they pitched a camp and so forth, and they drew up battle lines. Now, listen, listen to the description of Goliath, verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels on his legs. He wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. That's a lot of protection. That's a lot of body arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How could he move? Exactly. But here's the contrast. The Israelites are calling these uh, this grouping of people um, uncircumcised or uncouth or uncultured. Actually, their culture was way ahead of the Israelites. So much so that the Israelites didn't have any weaponry. And of course, you know the story of David and Goliath and the five smooth stones and bringing down Goliath. And if it was not but for the superstition of the identity of the Philistines thinking that God was on the side of the Israelites because uh, David was able to take down Goliath, they could have just said forward march and they could have wiped the Israelites out. But their cultural identity believed that God was on their side because their champion was taken down. So 
here again is this identity and culture thing that if you stop and think about it, you kind of go, oh, there's a collision course. Well, why were they fighting in the first place? Well, this area of land that we know as Palestine, Israel, and Lebanon was called the Levant land. And that's the area that the Philistines wanted to control. And um, so the Israelites and the Philistines come to this point where the Philistines gather their forces for war, verse one tells us, and, and they're going to control this area. Well, what's that all about? Same thing as in Egypt. The one that controls the area controls the culture and controls the resources that's there. So the Philistines, they are by nature part of their subculture. They're a more aggressive and expansionist type of people that wants to control this region. And here's these Jewish people, this small nomadic group of people that's in their way. So let's get them out of the way. And once we get them out of the way, we can control this area. That makes sense to everybody. Thoughts? But you have a collision of cultures here. So it's just like in our own history here in the United States. You know how big the United States is. Isn't there enough land where both the the pilgrims and the newcomers to this land and the Native Americans can all live in peace and harmony. Have you ever driven across Nebraska? <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of space for everybody, but, but it is control. It's the desire to control the identity and the culture that goes along with it. So, okay, I'm gonna give you one more example from scripture, uh, unless you have some thoughts here. Okay, go over to the book of Daniel. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to go past the Psalms and Proverbs and all the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then you get to Daniel. And once you get to Daniel, kind of sit down in chapter one. So I already mentioned about the Assyrians and the Egyptians, the third of this evil triangle is the Babylonians. And um, they are all kind of wanting to control the promised land. And a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar comes to the throne and he is the king of Babylon. And in 587, he decides he's going to invade Jerusalem. And he is going to bring back a group of people all the way back over 900 miles away um, to the land of Babylon. Why would you even bother? I mean, does it, you know, that's a lot of time uh, just to keep them alive in the journey. That's a lot of food and so, so forth. But we're told here in chapter one, what they're what Nebuchadnezzar's thinking is. Okay, verse three. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials. So Nebuchadnezzar is, uh, is giving this order to his chief. 
to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. So these are not the peasants, okay? These are the people that are in the Jerusalem court. Um, and then it says in verse four, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Now, what does he wanna do with them? He wants to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Then they're named, okay? Um, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What is going on here? Why does he bring these people all the way back to Babylon to enter into a three-year training program? You know what Nebuchadnezzar is doing? He's getting them ready to be the leaders back in Jerusalem to integrate Babylonian culture. So what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do is not just conquer the land. He wants to control the culture as well. And the culture involves all this learning of Babylonian history um, and all this type of thing that he wants, if these people can be shaped into his mold, if they can be schooled, if they can be conditioned, um, he will send them back to Jerusalem. And when he sends them back to Jerusalem, his desire is to do what Alexander the Great eventually accomplished with the Grecian Empire. And that is Alexander the Great Hellenized, that is made Greek culture, the dominant culture. And we know that because in the New Testament, what's it written in? Greek, not Aramaic, Greek. So Alexander the Great will achieve what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do here. So he's trying to reshape their identity. And what is it that he is going to do? He's first going to change their names. Look at verse 7. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So what he's doing is he's schooling them. He's conditioning them so that he can preserve Babylonian culture back in the land that's uh, of Jerusalem, which is 900 miles away from uh, Babylon. So what's going to eventually happen, interestingly enough, is that it will actually come out this way, even though Daniel is going to resist it. In verse 8, it says he resolved himself not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He's going to keep his own identity. But by the time the rest of Jerusalem is taken captive and into exile, when they are taken into Babylon, eventually they will intermarry. And as they intermarry, all of a sudden there is the merging of two cultures. And so finally, when Babylon is conquered and Cyrus the Great, um, the Medo-Persian 
uh, emperor says, you can go back and you can rebuild your temple and that type of thing. Most of the people don't go back because they've already made a new life in this new identity. They are now a hyphenated people, right? They are Babylonian Jews. And so they will stay put and they're going to work and they're going to have a family and they're going to get married and have grandkids and that type of thing. So um, when we think of just these few examples, this is nothing new when we think about this collision course of identity and culture and the desire to control those two things. It's something that has gone back thousands and thousands of years. Do you have some thoughts there? Some questions, comments, insights, um, confusion, anything? Those are good examples. Okay, so I, I'm not, I'm not going to start here. Uh, I'll start here next week. So I'm going to come back to identity and culture, and we're going to try to figure out a little bit more about um, what it is. What, so what is identity and uh, how does that factor into culture? But, um, but I'm not, I, I think we'd only get into it and then we'd be ready to stop. So we'll just hold off on that. So I encourage you um, to think about identity and culture this week and um, look for it. Try to keep your eyes open for it. And, you know, we can bring those back to the table next Wednesday. And I've given you some examples. Uh, just hold on to your handout because we only got through a part of it tonight. We'll, you, we'll finish this handout uh, next week. But um, any other thoughts or comments that you want to engage? I think we're good. Thanks, Larry. Thank, good examples. Thank you. Appreciate that. So anyways, uh, I think this should be a fun study. Um, it should be eye-opening to us a little bit. Um, and hopefully we'll have some tools in our tool belt to be able to discern a little bit in our own, in our own day and culture, what's going on around us, uh, because it's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said so many years ago. So, all right. Well, I hope you enjoy the rest of the week. We'll see you on Sunday. And um, we're starting a new series on Sunday that I'm looking forward to as well. So. Leah. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Have a good night. Yeah. Bye.